1: Thursday, June twenty third, twenty twenty two, from Peachfish Productions. It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump's secret sauce was revealed today. Adam Kinzinger, chairing the January sixth committee, quoted a statement the former president made to top DOJ officials regarding what leads they needed to chase down over the supposedly stolen election. As he told Mr. Donahue in that December twenty seventh call, "quote You guys may not be following the internet." The way I do. You guys may not be following the internet the way I do. Which has led me to realize how it started compared to how it's going. That's the insight I gleaned because you guys may not be following the internet the way I do. In fact, I have discovered a sort of... Tiger King type character. He's living in Oklahoma. I think you should check it out. And speaking of animals, because you guys may not be following the internet the way I do, I hear Fauci's dissecting beagles. Could you get on that? Now, the actual you guys may not be following the internet the way I do was in reference to a YouTube video, of course it was, which claimed that Italian satellites were hacking US voting machines. This U.S. video was forwarded by Pennsylvania Representative Scott Perry to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to eventually President Trump, who made the Attorney General at the time and his top lieutenants review it. After DOJ official Richard Donahue dubbed it insane, Trump leaned on his Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, to get into contact with U.S. and Italian officials, which he did. Unbelievable. Or if you've been watching the hearing, Entirely believable. Luckily, there were heroes like Donahue who stood in the way. In this context, heroes, that just describes any non insane person. A little to the left of a lunatic, you get to be a hero. There was the time when Jeffrey Clark, not a hero, and also an entirely unqualified Justice Department official, put forward an idea for who should be the new Attorney General. It was Jeffrey Clark. In moments like that, it's always good to have straight-shooting, non-insane people in the room, and when appropriate, these non-insane people can gently suggest to the insane people, "You're out of your goddamn mind." Richard Donahue recounting the words he said to Clark during a meeting in the Oval Office. He's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never been in front of a jury, much less a trial jury. Um. And he kind of retorted by saying, well, I've done a lot of very complicated appeals and civil litigation, environmental litigation and things like that. And I said, that's right. You're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill. To which fellow top Justice Department official Billy Batts added.
0: I'll go home and get your fucking shine box.
1: After which the meeting culminated in the president eating a box of Tide Pods. No one understands why, then again, us guys may not be following the internet the way he does. On the show today, I spiel about the Supreme Court ruling on guns, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, etc., at et al. vs. Bruin. But first, Tracy Flick, one of the most memorable characters in film history, only shouldn't start... In film, she was a Tom Parada character on the page in his book, Election. So on the one hand, one of the most iconic characters ever, on the other hand, she did get a little bit away from Parada, thanks largely to excellent work by Reese Witherspoon and director Alexander Payne and a big help from Hillary Clinton. So Parada wrestles back Tracy Flick in his latest work. We talked to the author of Election, The Leftovers, and now Tracy Flick Can't Win, up next. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in he could have taken some shots at the process the reporter or the president at that point but he didn't it was just an overall good interview was facilitated by jordan's excellent interview style Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a writer to be profound while seeming profound, that's one thing. It's a skill. I don't dismiss it. But if you're ever inside a novel where it's clear the author is grasping for the grand phrases that will overwhelm you, or the onslaught of a description that signals this is an elevated moment, you know what's going on. And then there's the work of Tom Parada, getting at truths through the vessels of characters who don't fancy themselves much more than small town mayors, vice principals, human sexuality educators, executive directors of the local senior center, characters who warn themselves against, quote, getting tricked into thinking they're more important than they are. That is a thought expressed by the title character of Tom Perata's latest novel, Tracy Flick Can't Win. Yes, that Tracy Flick, you know her from Election. She's back, and so is Tom, to the gist. Welcome back.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Absolutely. I feel a little bad because I had this insight then I read in an interview that you, in fact, confirmed it, but I said to myself, I wonder if Tom is trying to wrestle back this character from the movie version was
0: some of that going on well there's a a little bit of that it was it wasn't just the movie version though it was also um the way that Tracy Flick has become a you know a political shorthand for an unpleasantly ambitious woman and then you know Tracy Flick then got uh reenvisioned by you know feminist critics uh, who were and so it's like She's just been kind of, her, her meaning is contested, and I sort of wanted to re-enter that conversation. That said, I was not opposing the movie version at all. In fact, Reese Witherspoon's version of Tracy Flick is absolutely stuck in my head like everybody else.
1: So when you wrote this, were you thinking, and you closed your eyes, and you thought, thought of what Tracy was doing as now a vice president of this school, was it Reese's face from 1999 that you were, or maybe the face now that you were contemplating?
0: You know, I think I definitely had images in my head from from the movie and certainly that voice. You know, instead of wasting your time interrogating me, we should be out there trying to figure out who did this. Okay, Tracy, who do you think did
1: it? Whom should we interrogate?
0: Well, I don't know. You know, it could have been anybody. There's a lot of subversive elements here at Carver, like Rick Thiessen or Kevin Speck in those burnouts. Or what about Tammy Metzler? I mean, her whole thing is being anti this and anti that. You know, there's just like a very clipped kind of, uh, you know, intense uh, delivery that that Reese had for Tracy. and I And I could hear that. And, you know, obviously she was developing that partly based on what was in the book? You know, it's just, a, it's just this ongoing conversation now of, of 20 years. But yeah, I definitely f- couldn't really remember what Tracy was in my head before Reese played her.
1: Yeah, that was my question. So as I understand the timing of the book, you wrote it, put it in a drawer. It got developed in into the movie and then it was published. But who or what were you thinking of? Or do you remember what it was that was different before the movie?
0: Well, I mean, one thing... If, if you go back and look at the novel Election, um, Tracy is much more sexually confident yeah. in that version. And I was sort of trying to connect her to people like Madonna, you know, just there was this image of like girl power at that time in the 90s that was sort of based on this idea like women can be just like men. And they, and they you know, the corollary is they can be jerks just like men, you know, they can get what they want and not have to be um, likable and not have to be apologetic, you know, they're nobody's victim. And I think, you know, it was a smart move for Alexander Payne and Reese in the movie to kind of soften that part of her and make her more vulnerable
1: because it was maybe i want to get my waves right something like third wave feminism or what was probably derided as do me feminism and now in the new novel she's looking back on her 15 year old self wondering whether to trust her thoughts on it at the time
0: yeah and and i think in that sense she's just using the cultural lens of the past you know five or ten years you know very specifically the lens of me too and and you know, consent uh, culture and, you know, because young Tracy basically thought of herself as an adult. And she thought of herself as a powerful adult, in fact, you know, and she was obviously like trying to convince herself that she was that. Um, but now as, uh, you know, in, in 2018, when the book is set, she's looking back, she's reading stories about women like her, who are coming out of, of the woodwork and saying, hey, I had a, a, a relationship with my teacher. I thought it was consensual, but I see now that it was completely messed up, you know, and that I was taken advantage of. And, and Tracy doesn't like um, that kind of language. It, it, it kind of messes with her sense of her own agency and power, but she's starting to understand, well, wait a second, maybe I misjudged my own experience.
1: That seems very true to how a person might think about this, or many other um, many other things that happen to them that are now being politicized or now being recognized as political. But did you get did you catch any flack or guff from the people between nineteen ninety nine and and twenty twenty two who said you, as a man who is writing this female character who told herself she was powerful, you're getting it all wrong. You shouldn't put that out there.
0: As a matter of fact, i I didn't, which um, was was actually a huge relief to me because election was the first book where I had significant women characters and, and was writing from their perspective. and you know it wasn't so much back then a, a moralistic thing of like you don't have a right to do that. It was more a, an artistic challenge. Do you have the chops to make me believe your women characters? And I'll tell you what what happened. And again this is partly related to the movie which had a bigger profile than the book but in all those years what was a real common experience for me was for women to come up to me at bookstores or in book groups and just say hey i was tracy flick you know i had my hand in the air i i ran every club um you know i was a super ambitious uh young young woman and and they didn't they didn't look at tracy as some villain or some unpleasant person they were remembering affectionately like that's what it felt like to be a girl back in those days when when um it looked like suddenly all these new all these spaces in the culture were open to you that had been shut before
1: right it was a mirage maybe as we think about hillary clinton cuz the interesting thing about election the book since the movie was a few years after you wrote the book even though the publishing timeline was a little different it was very much about the 1992 presidential election right yeah and that was in the book and then tracy who becomes to many it's obviously to make that it's obvious to make this connection becomes something of an avatar for hillary clinton who wasn't running in that election so it's another presidential character because our culture is pretty obsessed with presidential elections. That works its way uh, through your work and comments on the culture.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how election really uh, kind of spanned this whole political era, um, which I would say is up to the election of Trump, but even including that was the Clinton era, you know, and Tracy's Mm -hmm. connected with Hillary. But, you know, election also had this... um, storyline about electoral fraud and and skullduggery that, you know, in 2000, right. uh, you know, the uh, Bush versus Gore, you know, uh, controversy and and then, you know, Hillary running against Trump and Hillary running against Obama, you know, people were able to kind of use uh, election as a sort of, you know, just, just a way to organize their thoughts about What was happening in american presidential elections which i think was kind of an amazing thing
1: well it seems like you always i think i've read all of your books except maybe one of the short story collections but i probably read a bunch of those uh somehow they they came across my consciousness and it seems that the dominant way you have of writing is I don't think you go out and search for uh, an issue that's in the culture, but something about a cultural issue or the culture at that moment greatly informs what you're going to write about. So one of your books that came out in you know 2014, let's say, it would have been a vastly different book if it had come out in 2022. The conversations we were having maybe about pornography in 2014 and Mrs. Fletcher are a little bit, or that's maybe 2017, are a lot different from even the ones we're having in 2022. And that's probably true of all of your books. They're very informed by the time period, really like a very specific time period around the time you wrote them, would you say?
0: yeah yeah and and you know it it's a complicated thing to try and ride that wave because you know it it takes a long time for a book to make you know to be written and then to make it out into the world and then say there's also an adaptation which was the case with mrs fletcher so i would say there that was like a real lesson for me because i felt like oh there's all this stuff sort of rumbling underneath the surface of american culture about gender and sexuality and consent and i wanted to pack it all into that book and in the time it took me to write it and then get it published all that stuff that was like kind of rumbling under the surface just blew up in this enormous way
1: so so subtext becomes text do you get punished for that like you're less insightful than you thought you were because everyone's saying it now
0: well i would say this you know um I started out feeling like I was just ahead of the curve and I ended up feeling like I was just behind the curve (laughs) Um, because by the time the book, uh, by the time the TV show came out, particularly this idea of, you know, looking at porn maybe from a sex-positive feminist angle was suddenly like, you know, people were skeptical of that. Much more skeptical, I think, than they would have been Earlier, And and it's not like the book was like endorsing porn, but it was really trying to see how porn affected, you know, different people in in the same family, actually, you know, so you got this kind of, you know, jerky son who's got some stupid ideas about sex from watching too much porn. And you got a mom who is feeling a little depressed and forgotten and porn becomes a way to kind of reclaim some idea of her sexuality. But I, I, you know, By the time that it came out, I think people were much more focused on, you know, a a backlash to the sexual revolution in the sense that porn participated in a lot of the same um, oppression that that was being um, looked at through the Me Too lens.
1: Right. But luckily, these things are all a pendulum. So maybe if someone reads that book now or watches the HBO series on that book, they'll meet it at a different place than either you were where you were writing it or when it was published.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, the other one, The Abstinence Teacher, which was about, um, you know, sex education, I really felt like that, that book had become obsolete in the sense that, you know, it was about Christian right and... Uh, liberals trying to talk about sex and then and i i believe that there was some common ground that could be found and then the trump right came in and i just felt like oh he, there's no common ground to be found with the trump right and yet we're still now we're talking about birth control again and we're talking about sex education and we're you know it's like it it's not as um politically obsolete as i thought you know i thought we'd gotten beyond all that in some way and we're dealing with other issues but it does yeah. seem like maybe the pendulum is back on that one so you mentioned
1: you know kind of her jerky son this is the kind of lunkhead dunderhead character i think keeps uh, maybe teenage boy keeps appearing um maybe in joe college he was you but i do sense that paul uh in election uh was kind of just the uh The doofus, but a lovable doofus. And then he became a less benign doofus in Mrs. Fletcher. And then the character, the student council president, who's still the boy and not as as credentialed as the more impressive girl who's the vice president he takes on a different sheen. You keep, I think, I mean, I sense that you keep writing this character in different ways and coming down on him more or less harshly, depending on, I guess, the demands of the book you're writing, but also what we think of men and masculinity culturally.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I I think, uh, you know, some, uh, there's a review in The Atlantic, you know, kind of a think piece about Tracy Flick and just, said, oh, you know, his real subject is, you know, toxic masculinity. And and I, I understood that that's a certainly a recurring subject for me, but I think I would say that, that really what I'm trying to track as a writer is, um, you know, the fallout of the sexual revolution and the revolution in gender roles that's been going on my whole life, you know, and, and um, you know, when you say Tracy, when, Tracy Flick can't win. It's like Tracy's realizing, she she's always better than these guys who she's competing with. But there's never a, a playing field where she's allowed to kind of uh, prove that, you know. And these guys are always getting just a little wind at at their backs, you know. And and um, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't know that that is um, happens in every case. But it certainly is something that I've been exploring in my work. You know, women. Have had a lot of opportunities to redefine their lives, and men have felt, you know, maybe unfairly that that their space to operate has narrowed a little bit, and yet they still have, you know, legacy <laughs> advantages that come with that.
1: So the last question: This is about Tracy Flick can't win. I don't want to give away uh, the ending. It's uh, unexpected. Um, it's exciting. It's interesting. It's uh, you contemplate it, but my question is, when someone achieves what they want to achieve, but not for the reasons they wanted to achieve it, let's not say wrong, but not for the reasons they wanted to achieve it, has that person achieved success?
0: I think, I think time will tell. I mean, I mean let me just, I'll, I'll, I'll answer your indirect question with an, in, with an indirect uh, allusion, which is I was thinking very much about Robert Caro's book, Passage to Power where Lyndon Johnson is living in a state of perpetual humiliation in in the Kennedy White House. Bobby Kennedy hates him and humiliates him, you know, gratuitously and constantly. And then one day, JFK is assassinated, and it all just flips. It's like a Shakespearean reversal. Suddenly, Lyndon Johnson is the president, and Bobby is chastened and broken. And it is one of the most amazing political stories I've ever read. Now, what does that mean for Johnson? It means he has an opportunity uh, to prove himself. And I think the the test isn't so much how did he get there, it's what, what does he do when he's there. And I, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, none of us can control the circumstances that um, create opportunities in our lives, but we have to then... I think we can just be judged by what we do with the opportunities.
1: Tom Parada is the author of many books, the latest of which is Tracy Flick, Can't Win. Tom, great talking to you.
0: Great to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: And now the spiel. In New York, it's called proper cause. New Jersey dubs it justified need. It is the question of whether a citizen should be able to carry a gun. 43 states say yes, flat out yes. These are the shall issue states. Fill out the forms properly. If you don't have certain criminal convictions, you get a gun. But in a few states, it's conditional. And in a few, very few municipalities within those states, it does become improbable. And that is why the municipality in which I live is statistically likely to be safer than wherever you live if you live somewhere else in the United States. The murder rates in New York City used to be in the threes when the country was in the fives. Now the New York City homicide rate is 5.5 and the national murder rate in 2021 was 6.9. What's the cause? I would say there was, to a large extent, a proper cause, the proper cause. New York City's gun laws worked for New York City, if working is described as keeping more people alive and unwounded than there would otherwise be. Or, I probably should say worked, because today the Supreme Court ruled, as expected, that states may not have, may issue regimes when it comes to guns. All states are to adopt shall issue rules, which means that the laws that were working for New York will not be allowed to keep working due to a Supreme Court ruling. They interpreted a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, as meaning keeping and bearing arms on one's person, concealed. The rights of a person, by the way, to have a gun on their premises in their homes in New York City, it did require forms and background checks, but it was fairly easy to get one for a non-felon. But in overturning New York state law, the Supreme Court reversed a rule that was on the books since 1913. The law has governed New Yorkers for 109 years. That law was passed 122 years after the Second Amendment was ratified, that's almost the same amount of time. Yet somehow our current Supreme Court's understanding of the meaning of the Second Amendment is clearer than it was to the New York State Legislature over 100 years ago and in the 109 years since. The Supreme Court has decided that the laws that worked for the city of New York and the state of New York should not have been allowed to work. Thousands of lives saved over the years should not have been allowed to be saved. I feel obligated but reluctant to say something about states' rights and local control and lob a charge of hypocrisy, but neither party faction or philosophy is pure on this. But it is just a clear example of local laws working relative to the national trend and the Supreme Court coming in and saying, no, we don't care. In a note, Samuel Alito noted that the Buffalo Massacre happened in New York, and therefore, I, I, I didn't understand what his point was. How does that affect concealed carry? The gunman there wielded an AR-15, not able to be concealed. By the way, if in 1791, when they ratified the Second Amendment, if they were talking about concealed carry, they were talking about a firearm that could shoot one time every two minutes, was muzzle loaded, the shortest of which... A dragon, which is a type of blunderbuss, was 11 inches, as opposed to a Glock today, which is 6 or 7 inches. So it's maybe even unlikely that a concealed weapon could have been anything other than a dagger. There is no way the Constitution anticipated widespread concealed carry and no way the Founding Fathers would want the Court to look at a law that was entirely aligned with the good working order of a state, of their first capital, in fact, and say, no, we must authorize John Jay and his fellow jurists to disallow it. Yes, I know, it wasn't until Marshall that we had judicial review, but this is not the original intent of the founders. In fact, there is no possible universe in which the idea of original intent, even if applied justly, would be applied to this law in this way, appending, as it does, existing laws that weren't even thought to be in the realm of the unconstitutional for decades, nay, centuries. For decades, there just wasn't the idea that laws regulating personal gun ownership might be unconstitutional. And then it became an idea, and within a generation, that idea became a Supreme Court ruling. And while this is personal for me as a New Yorker, so many states are affected, and by affected, I mean hurt, and by states being hurt, I mean the people in those states will be hurt or killed because of this ruling. Here now are the states with the lowest rates of firearm mortality, according to the CDC. Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, and California, here now are the states that were may issue, that have may issue, not shall issue, gun laws on their books. Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, and California. Now, to be fair, two more states are May issue, Delaware and Maryland, that don't have low firearm mortality rates. Maryland, it's a clear example of it being the exception to the rule, Baltimore being a city rife with murder, and May issue laws not doing much to affect that. Delaware, on the other hand, they're a May issue state but as the Supreme Court even noted, may issue in name only in 2022 in Delaware. This year in Delaware, 5,680 permits were applied for and 5,568 were granted. But the facts are clear, really clear. The rule is that the more restrictive gun laws a state has, the fewer people proportionally that state has dying from guns. It is an extremely strong correlation, in fact. The Supreme Court just made the lives of American citizens worse, doomed more people to death, usurped the state's authority to pass laws that help and protect their citizens, and interpreted the Constitution in an historically novel way. And now I will make one subjective part of this litany of accusations interpreted the Constitution in an incredibly asinine way. The blessings of my constitutional rights never felt so damning. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesco works very hard for everything at Peachfish Productions, not like some rich kids who everybody likes because their fathers own Metzler's Cement and give them trucks for their 16th birthday and throw them big parties all the time. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, do Peru, and thanks for listening.